Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and I'm so thrilled today to be talking about the IFC film Rogue Agent. We are joined by actor and producer James Norton, as well as director, co-writer and executive producer Declan Lorne, director, co-writer and executive producer Adam Patterson, and co-writer and executive producer Michael Bronner. And Declan, Adam and Michael, I wanted to start with kind of asking a story about the, a question about the way that you kind of figured out how to tell this story structurally, because You've, you've taken this story and found a way to give us so many details of the play-by-play -play of what happened, when it happened, and yet really found a way to centralize it through focusing the story on character, um, first and foremost, for how you give us a lot of that exposition. And so I was interested in the script writing process, how you would go through a lot of factual details and find the way to drive the story narratively through character in the way that you have. Well, I guess we'll let Michael start with that because the whole thing started with him, so um, he can talk us through the beginning of it. Sure. Um, good question. I, I started this process uh, in 2006 as a journalist and a filmmaker. I was in the edit room of United 93, the first feature I worked on with Paul Greengrass and found a little article about Freeguard that he had been convicted of kidnapping by fraud and the article made no sense. Um, so I started digging into it and wrote an 11,000 word piece. And, you know, my first draft, of, I was then hired by, I, I, it was, the piece was optioned by the development partnership, which then hired me to write a screenplay. And my first draft was 170 pages. Um, you know, it was just so much story, you know, and then it's a process of getting real and starting to winnow it down and focusing on some of the key relationships um, you know, it's a different kind of truth than journalism and you have to learn how to let go of the journalism at some point and use the drama to make your case. And then I worked it through a few drafts and then Adam and Declan took it from there and, and put their spin on it and found what they found was interesting. Yeah, so all three of us um, were investigative journalists at one time or another, Adam and I for uh, the BBC and, and, and Michael uh, in the States with Frontline. And, and so um, we're all really interested in true stories that that have drama in them. But as Michael says, winnowing down a story uh, as huge and expansive as this that took place over maybe 15 years um, from start to finish was a really tall, tall order. So what we really had to do was try and find the essence of the story, uh, what it's like to be fooled by a sociopathic narcissist. Um, and one of the things that we were all attracted to was, was the character who became Alice Archer at the center of this, the person who finds herself on the ropes and, and on the canvas, but, but refuses to give up and decides that she's not gonna be a victim, that, that she's gonna find this guy. Um, and so for us, that became the central dramatic essence of it. But that point that Michael raises is a really important one. Uh, as a journalist, you, you want to tell the literal truth. As a dramatist, you have to be willing to find the essence of the truth. And that, leaves, that means leaving out a lot of stuff. There were a lot of other victims that we were aware of, possibly any one of them whose story we could have focused on. Um, there were a lot of things we just couldn't fit in. And so that was our job, really. Effectively, that was the job, a, a kind of a painful job at times. But, but a job that we had to do was just find the essential drama in it. Was that a challenge that you similarly found as well in that part of the process, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I would just add that, you know, 
we could have taken very many different genre routes as well through the film, you know, and it does kind of flirt with the spy story. But I think it is very hard. It's a kind of cat and mouse psychological thriller. And that really was only born out of possibility because we helmed it within uh, the kind of Catch Me If You Can, kind of him versus her with Alice and James's character. So that's why we felt it fitted best within the kind of a two-hour dramatic uh, framework of a movie. Um, and that's why we kind of landed on that genre. And as Declan and Michael have attested to, it did mean leaving a lot of other things out, but we feel like we've told a real truth with the story in a very kind of character-driven way, which people can really relate to. Yeah. And then James, in, in talking about building out this character for your performance, I was really interested in the kind of research and development part of that process, because essentially you're taking a lot of this, this factual information and all of the research information that you can find about him, and then trying to distill that down to understanding and kind of finding that through road of what it what it is that really created this person who was going out there and defrauding people in this way, what really drives his actions and, and what's the emotional landscape of a character like that? Um, and so what was that that window in kind of finding, finding the way through for you in terms of what really drives him and what's the emotional trajectory of a character like that? Yeah, I mean, there was a, there was a lot. Um again sort of the uh, in the same vein as the the writing and the distilling down you know turning from investigative journalist to to sort of writer uh these guys are uh, talking about as as an actor and also as a producer on this and being with this project for the last kind of 6 years like i knew more than i've ever known about any role i've ever played and you do get greedy you want to show it all um but luckily adam and declan's uh, sort of later drafts and 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 michael's uh, you know we we were able to distill it down and so i only you know had i had a limited amount um as far as the actual script was concerned and and the work we'd done in the development process getting to that final script just meant that it was uh, allowed me to go further richer deeper you know to find a private life and you know address the big why question why is this man the way he is what is the context the trauma the the kind of inner private life which which makes sense of these actions but we didn't want to make the movie exclusively about that we wanted the audience to be left with that kind of enigma that puzzle and, and let them try to work try and work it out for themselves um we had a lot of speculation and we knew and we knew a huge amount about his whole life i mean you know michael's initial article was is so thorough um he had so much contact with so many of the victims so it was all backed up and verified and and then there are other documentaries and there's court documents and you know adam and declan uh, scoured through every single um transcript from his from his trial so we had a huge amount of um information and and at a certain point as an actor and as as a storyteller you have to just um as these guys have said you have to discard that and hope that the the, the truth comes out from behind the eyes and um and let the audience make the decisions uh, for themselves to a certain extent. Absolutely. And, and Adam and Declan, you know, Adam, you was bringing up the point before about you know, figuring out the genre, the tone and, and the voice of how you wanted to tell this particular story. And so once you honed in on that idea that you really did want to lead into kind of the, the thriller spy element with that catch me if you can element, um, how did that start to shape a lot of the initial concepts and ideas that you had in visually how you wanted to tell this story and the way that you wanted to use the camera to bring it into bring us into it? Well, well, I'll say something very briefly yeah. first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let Adam uh, take that one. But Adam and I both um, kind of spent uh, 
time in that crazy London of the early noughties. Uh, we both worked in London then in 2002, before the financial crash. And we knew that we wanted to show the kind of the kind of consumerist glamour of it, I suppose, and the, the thrill of it, and the, just the whole illusion of hyper consumerism. So we were really keen um, that Alice would live in that world, um, and that it would look seductive and charming in itself. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll let Adam take take the rest in terms of how we how we went about trying to recreate that that world that we knew twenty years ago. No, I think that's right. I mean. I mean, Freeguard himself is an illusion machine. You know, he uh, creates illusions for people. He offers them the fantasy of escape. So we had to feel like we, the viewer, were kind of uh, could buy into this fantasy and the fantasy had to be alluring. So, you know, you start with kind of bigger, brighter shots of London. As Declan says, you know, you're flying down by a lighthouse in a Ferrari. Uh, it's all shot by Larry Smith, by the way, who's, you know, it's it's not you know who's a phenomenal cinematographer so but the concept was that you start big and open um with lots of color and generally as the film goes on as Freeguard unravels and Alice unravels and their kind of intertwining chase goes on that the world becomes much more close and claustrophobic until like the, and almost like the color is, is, is being sucked out of the world um so he's left in a cabin like facing a mirror looking at his own life for the first time so the idea is that at the end you're kind of you're, you're, you're kind of trapped there with him as he tries to work out uh, what he's actually all about and that was the kind of concept generally for the tone and in the writing process I love I love the use of voiceover at the beginning very specifically because it starts to give us this idea of elements of, of this character and the way that he reads people and connects to people before we've kind of fully started to understand who he is on screen. And so I was interested in kind of the, the genesis or, or the reason that that felt like an important storytelling tool and where that came from. Well, well all of that came from, from Michael's original uh, script and, and his original article. So again, I'll, I'll let you speak to that, Michael, but Michael unearthed this fascinating character who, and James captured it perfectly, this idea that you can be so seductive and so charming that anyone, anyone of high intelligence and self-awareness can fall for it. Um, but Michael, maybe you wanna, you wanna start with that one? Sure, I mean, I think one thing that emerges when you, when you start to try to figure out what makes this guy tick and what makes it possible for him to manipulate people that weren't, you know, they weren't dumb, they weren't simple, they weren't young. You know, the, the final one was the head of legal at a major financial institution in, in the city in London. And she became the most important character. And she told me, you know, just how he always told you something plausible and he could read you like a, like a book. And the FBI agent who was involved because there was an American victim as well. So it became a Scotland Yard FBI joint investigation. And she's a very veteran agent. Jacqueline Zappacosta, and she told me that Freeguard was the most gifted con man she had ever encountered, and that his skill in terms of finding like even the smallest vulnerability in someone, in any of us, you know, and playing a very long game, he was willing to, to play it out over a long time and just slowly pick away at people's defenses and worm his way into you. And then he would separate you from your family, from your friends, from your own finances, and he would have you and, and control you. And that perceptiveness was what was so interesting to me about Freeguard. And you could see as James is portraying him, you know, that watchfulness, that, that little light bulb going off when he notices something in someone. And I, I thought that was done brilliantly. 
Yes, I, I love that in James' performance where you can see the gears turning very quickly in his mind. You can, and as James mentioned earlier, you can see it behind the eyes where he's being confronted with a difficult truth um, and you can, you, can, you can see what he's doing and, and he gets out of it. It's great. No, I think I think that's a great point. And, and in talking a little bit about that, James, you know, I was interested in how you went into this character with that idea in scenes that that like Michael and Declan were just saying, your character has to be incredibly perceptive. He has to be kind of silently and subtly reading people, trying to be several steps ahead because he's anticipating. But then there's also the balance of when he's confronted with something, if he hasn't anticipated it, what does that look like when the wheels are turning and we maybe get to see just tiny little flickers of, of what's going on for him? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was it, for for us, you know, a word we came back to a lot was control. And um, I think a lot of these these types of people have possibly experienced a lack of control earlier on in their life. Um, and when they are then, uh, you know, they, they create this sort of this this narrative around them and it gives them it, it empowers them. And um, so his very, very sort of. Um, furious grasp on control and the control of other people around him and and as, as he became better and better at manipulating people um that became his life force and so we find him at the beginning of that journey where he's just beginning to kind of flirt with this power he has um and and this ability to um essentially kind of repress any moral compass and 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 like the true kind of callous sociopaths out there he's able to sort of uh, ignore any kind of compassion and empathy um, and then we jump the 10 years or eight years whatever it is into the future and we find him brilliant and honing his his uh, craft of manipulation and um, deceit and um, and then the, the, as you say the great thing from my point of view was playing with the uh, the slow very satisfying um, kind of cathartic uh, at least from the audience's point of view the cathartic uh, experience of his his narrative and his whole um, sort of house of cards slowly falling apart and th those were some of the most you know satisfying scenes earlier early on in that kind of demise you know letting the moments of la the, the kind of panic um, because so much of his his whole shtick is this performance and and then um and then slowly that kind of uh, falls away so yeah it was it was fun to play with with um, Adam and Declan were great at um we were going to have a lot of discussion about how how far to go how much to to sort of disentangle and uh, uh you know play with the vulnerability and at what point we, we we really wanted to I mean for a lot of the development process we really wanted to uh make allow the audience to believe he was a, a spy right right up until kind of the the, yeah. the last third i mean that came that sort of became it did nudge earlier but we really did feel like we wanted to show him in all his power and and hopefully allow the audience to be um manipulated and and spun the lie as well as the characters and his victims and because of because of that point that, that kept being brought up as well about you know he he had to be he was someone who very intelligent people were were lured into his world and knowing that he had to have you know this kind of very arresting charm and charisma that can make mm. people push down some of the doubts and and questions that they're starting to have around him how did you find how did you figure out you know what does that charm and charisma look like for him as a character because it has to be you know very effervescent but kind of not too obvious at the same time yeah we didn't we uh, one decision we made really early on um was that we wanted we didn't want him to feel just charming cold you know that kind of that very 
slick kind of spy, I guess, you know, for what for want of a better kind of comparison, this sort of James Bond thing, you know, we wanted him. And I think, and I think, you know, this came from Michael's article and 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 chewing over, um, you know, as I say, that the, the many years that we chewed over this with initially with um, this amazing producer Rob Taylor who found the article and initially sent it to me about five years ago, and then and Kitty Kolecki and that those two as well were very very adamant that we wanted to tap into a kind of peculiarity. We wanted to yeah. tap into um, the, the sort of the this the weirdness which disarmed people. So you know those lines when. When Alice says you're so fucking weird and 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 I don't know why I'm falling for you but I am and and then out of that came these really lovely but quite surprising scenes where you know like I love I, I as as a as James love eating but we we found that <laughs> in scenes where there was food I would eat voraciously and it kind of fit free guard it wasn't smooth it wasn't sexy it was like yeah. a man who assumed and was a love the sensual kind of the physical experience of the world and 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 it added these kind of slightly jarring moments where his charm was unpredictable and I think you know the leopard for example is brilliant brilliant yeah, but it also like offered vulnerability James because like I think we all decided in the in the in the development that Alice would meet slick people all the time she's not going to fall for slickness it's too shallow it's not you know it's not honest enough for her so like you know he kind of tries a little bit with the first attempt outside the the uh, the car the car rental garage um, when he's a salesman, and then he realizes he needs to be more vulnerable. But that's how good he is. That's how quickly he can shift, and how quickly he can adapt to different people's kind of wants. Um, yeah. And so, like you know, I think we've all talked about a little bit. But one of the really important points here is that it's not a case of you know an interesting con man. Of course, yes, he is fascinating, but it's not a case of a series of idiotic victims it's a case of very intelligent people any of us can fall for this sort of person and these people do walk amongst us and that's i think what well, i think we have delivered on a bit in the film and certainly a point we tried to make really well yeah i i thought james's portrayal was so good that if james and costume had asked me to empty my bank account i, I probably would have <laughs> i should have done that you should have told me the time um there was another surprising element which came out of it i think po the post sort of the the me too conversation which was never really conscious and not, not in the forefront of our decision making but there is something kind of um and i don't want to use the word gas gaslighting but you know he he pretend in the movie and i think it's something we kind of discovered in the development process and i think some of it came out of michael's original article but he gave the impression of empowerment and, 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 and enabling and emboldening um, these, these, these people. And of course, at the same time, he's ruining their lives and ripping out their sort of strength and their, and their power. But um, it's a dark, twisted habit, which I think a lot of men, some women, but a lot of men have done, in the, you know, which is to give this impression of, of, of being a, a, a sort of an ally and actually um, doing the exact opposite. But um, there was a lot of scenes, you know, with, with Sarah Goldberg's character and, and, and Gemma's scene where I remember going, do it, go for it. You've got the, li the life's ahead of you, you know, and, and knowing the whole time that I'm just tapping away at their bank balances and stealing everything, which means ending to them. So yeah, that was, that was the way in. With the, uh, the real woman who inspired Gemma's character, um, you know, she was this corporate lawyer and, and he discerned really early on that she was unsatisfied with that and went through this entire elaborate process of convincing her to start her own business, renting cars and leasing, buying and leasing cars. 
And then, you know, it took months of setting up and then he slowly got her to invest. And, you know, that was one of the ways that he had had her part ways with her, her savings. But it was all this sort of aspiration of, of wanting to, to do something more than just be in this corporate setting. Adam and Declan um, came up off, again from from what Michael, as Michael's describing the, the the amazing wealth information we had from the original article with this amazing kind of phrase which we always kept coming back to, which was everyone has a story they want to be told, and it's in the movie. Um, and I won't go into it, but you know, Adam had an experience of his own where you know he was told a story, and that that became a real kind of um, touchstone for us. And I think um, everyone has, as Michael said, that that whatever it is which is lacking in their life, and somehow Freeguard, without necessarily an emotional intelligence, but with this warped power, was able to to see exactly what it is that everyone lacked. Yeah, and life. then he convinces them to like somehow sacrifice. Um, reason on the altar of escapism, which is pretty phenomenal to be able to do that to a cross-section of people. For a group of students, they can be MI5 agents. For an American in London, he can be their Prince Charming. For a litigation lawyer, she can be free from all the entrapments of a male-driven legal world. Like, it's pretty phenomenal. And I don't know how many plates he had spinning or how he did it, um, because there was myriad characters we didn't include, victims, as Declan was attesting to earlier, all around the country. I mean, the guy, I just don't know, and that, the thing we kept coming back to was it had to be like an addiction. James spoke of this, right? Because it's the only way you could keep all the plates spinning is if you were feeding off it. You know, you just can't stop. And that's why well, he it was his job. It was also his job, you know. That was how, that was how he supported himself. Yeah. And he kept, he kept buying new cars, kept buying bigger rings for different women. And, yeah. you know, ultimately he just had too many plates spinning, as you say. I mean, I imagine that, that one of the challenges in terms of, of narratively how to tell this story as well is what you're all talking about with you know the the different ways that he pulls people in and you know with Al Alice is such a great central character to this because we do see her start to question things and we start to see the way in which he's able to assume those questions have her kind of like squash it down but then we also see where the tipping point comes of okay now there's too many questions this just doesn't seem right in my gut yeah. instinct telling me that that none of what he's telling me is true um and so how did you kind of find that balance of how many details can this character see and what are the things that the audience is also going to step into and yeah. go, okay, like I would have believed that detail as well up until yeah. a point. I'll, I'll jump in first there and then the other guys can jump in, but that's like, it's a really important point. That was crucial um, because if we didn't show the tipping point soon enough and the audience was ahead of Alice, she would look foolish and her character wasn't foolish. So it was really imperative to find that balance. And it's something we all grappled with through the script stage obviously through prep and through the shoot and even into the edit, you know, are we giving her enough credibility? Is he still credibly, you know, but then he's so good. He comes back so quickly. He's, he's so on the front foot. Um, but obviously the point of no return, then she goes to uh, Sophie's parents' house. And that's really, obviously that's where the hammer really comes down. And that's where the, the film splits in two. And you then watch him doing the same things again to Jenny, but you see, but you see your fascination is different you're not charmed by him anymore, but you're infatuated by the tales that you missed as the viewer. And that's why we felt we could show similar scenes again, but that they were actually still very interesting. I also wanted to ask specifically about the scene where you have him and, and Gemma in the hotel room and they're kind of like on these different levels and dancing. Yeah. Um, Do you want to talk about the dancing? 
I thought it was just such a great scene because again, it, it shows those kind of like different moments of disarmament. And even as a viewer, you know, he kind of always tells her like, you know, you were different to me from all the other people. And the fact that he even makes that phone call well after is kind of a risky move and he knows it is. Mm. So even as an audience member, there's still this push and pull like, but did he really have feelings for her or not? And, and back and forth. And I think that scene is a great crux for why that dilemma exists. And so where did you can you all kind of like conceptualize that from and then just find, you know, what does this frivolity between these two characters look like in this moment with the music as well? I think we wanted to feel like Alice was the closest he came to falling in love. And, and that's why ultimately he lost everything because of her, uh, partly because of her, you know, power as a, as a, as a journalist and as a, um, her own kind of um, uh, power in his, in the face of his kind of disarmament. But uh, also uh, it just, yeah, it just me meant our whole movie, movie. I mean, Michael can attest to whether or not that applied to the original character Alice is based on, but for our movie, we really wanted to explore the idea that he, uh, he 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 allowed too much vulnerability because of her and so that scene when you see him goofing around we really wanted to find a real authenticity to it you know we yeah. again we didn't want it to look slick and so i i i really struggled with the the whole dancing thing because i was like I, I really don't want to dance around the towel and look like a, an asshole but I, also, <laughs> but, I, but I had to you know um so just <laughs> watching that i really you know i'm not a horrible i'm not as horrible a dancer as <laughs> That's free goddess, I hope. But um, but it was really just mostly it was important for us to find a true tenderness to their relationship. Um, because you know, it, it wasn't just a device, you know, we really wanted to feel like a, a love story, a rom-com. Um, so that when you know she lost him and he lost her, it it really they, they we felt the cost, you know. Yeah, like I, I would say uh, the, the kernel of that comes from uh Michael's work where he did in fact contact the real person again um, and there was enough just about enough evidence there for us to think that he probably did have feelings for her or as much as he was able to have feelings and we wanted to play with that throughout the whole film so that that final scene where they confront each other outside the house where there's an element of what what he's saying he at least believes to be true that that she's the only one who can save him and that that she's the only one he's ever loved. And, and I think uh, that's an ambiguity that, that came from Michael's original work and that we all wanted to preserve. I mean, Michael, you can probably attest to that yourself. Yeah, I think you captured that really well. And I, and I do think that the, he saw in her a challenge, you know, in, at a time when he was feeling unchallenged and there was something thrilling both for her and for him. It was a competition. It wasn't, you know, sappy love story between the two of them they were like both type a and they were in this twisted competition with each other and that was their love language and their thrill and um he took so many chances and risks in in staying with her she was clearly a threat to him and yet he he still continued with her and and pursued her and ultimately it was the cause of his downfall and it, it's also interesting because the 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 most most of the movie we see him through the eyes of this dynamic with Alice and then towards the end with with Jenny there are a couple of moments where we see him kind of going off by himself there's that scene where he's really frustrated because everything that he's trying to do isn't working yet the, the wheels aren't in motion enough for where he wants it to be and he spits in the mirror and I thought that was such a fascinating tell of everything that he's trying to suppress within himself a lot of the time um, and so what made you realize that that was a really important moment to be able to give us 
some semblance of, of kind of like almost the behind the scenes and, and the private moments with him as a character as well, even though, you know, early on it needs to be through the dynamic of this, this thing with Alice. Like, we always think that really good drama comes from a character being forced to look at themselves in the mirror and, and either changing or not. Um, and Alice does. She, she eventually, at her lowest ebb, does look at herself in the mirror and decides that she, she needs to change her life. Um, part of that is catching, catching Freeguard, but, but part of that is much more than that. It's about facing up to who she is and what she really wants. Freeguard is unable to look at himself in the mirror because when he does, it's just a... It's just a shattered mirror. There's not. There's nothing to see. And, and I think, for me anyway, one of the most powerful moments in the film is when he physically looks at himself in the mirror, and we kind of left James to that and said, "What do you think he would do?" And, and the spitting and and all. I, I personally, I think it's it's really powerful, and it's exactly what it's exactly what a shattered personality would do when they look in the mirror is rage. I think it's a great. Yeah. Really enjoy. Yeah, and I think obviously at that stage as well, you're right. You know, um, he's uh, everything's going at breakneck speed. He's not getting what he wants. You know, he 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 continually ups the ante to feed the addiction. He continually gets more dark, like throwing her medication in the fire to try and like speed along the process of getting the money. Like that's kind of, I mean, that's very. It's kind of real how that that addiction would need to keep feeding itself. And you know, it's like any addiction, the hit needs to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So. Like it's only there's only so long that that can be sustained, and I think you know it's coupled with the pressure from Alice and the feelings he may or may not have had for her, that kind of all brought on down in the end. Well, I'm I'm so impressed by how you you know took the entire story and all of the details and and found this really nuanced way to tell the story on screen. So congratulations on everything with the film, and thank you so much for talking about it. I really appreciate it. Thanks so thank much. You. Thank you.